It's Friday, March 23rd, and from the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, this is Pennsylvania Legacies. I'm Josh Rollerson. In 2005, a Lycoming College archaeology professor got a call. It was from a local historian who discovered what he thought might be some 19th century ruins on a piece of private land near the West Branch Susquehanna River. So they drove out to the site to have a look. And he poked around with a bar when we got there, and we heard a thunk, which meant it wasn't hitting dirt anymore. He hit a piece of concrete. And we said, yep, there's something here. Now, if you're an archaeologist, when you find something potentially significant, normally your next move is to close off the area and bring in professionals. But instead, they invited the whole community in to help excavate. Thirteen years later, the site is a public park where people can come to learn about local history or just to hike the trails, check out the wildlife, and enjoy some outdoor time. There is no way that this would have happened without support from the government, from the state. It would never have gotten off the ground. On this episode, we'll hear the story of Muncie Heritage Park and Nature Trail, one of thousands of community assets built or improved with help from Pennsylvania's Keystone Recreation Park and Conservation Fund. Our series of Keystone Fund success stories continues coming up. But first, some exciting news from PEC to share with you. You may know that we've been working over the past year with stakeholders on deep decarbonization strategies for Pennsylvania's energy sector. The ultimate goal is to reduce the Commonwealth's greenhouse gas emissions by 90 percent or more over the next few decades. We held a conference on that subject almost a year ago, March 2017, and followed up over the summer with a white paper detailing the proceedings and identifying next steps. Last fall and winter, we moved forward with a series of smaller conversations focusing in on topics like carbon pricing and nuclear energy. Well, this spring, we're taking our first steps toward implementing the fruits of all those labors. I'm very pleased today to introduce you to the person who will be heading up this very important ongoing effort at PEC. Alyssa Berger joins the team this month as Senior Policy Advisor for Energy and Climate. She comes to us by way of the Center for Sustainable Energy in California most recently. She's also worked on energy policy for the Institute for Market Transformation and the German Marshall Fund of the United States, both in Washington, D.C., also, Penn Future and Sustainable Pittsburgh here in Pennsylvania. I sat down with Alyssa on her second day on the job to learn more about her past work and her vision for achieving deep carbon reductions in Pennsylvania. Here's our conversation. Alyssa, welcome to PEC. Really glad to have you here. Thank you. I'm excited to have joined the team. You're returning from some time around the country and elsewhere, but you have roots in western Pennsylvania. That's right. I born and raised in Pittsburgh, and I also went to grad school here at Carnegie Mellon. So I'm excited to be back after some time away. Give us uh, just a quick synopsis of your resume. What have you been up to since you left Pittsburgh the last time? Sure. So um, I dabbled in Seattle for a little bit. I was out in the Pacific Northwest looking at some climate action planning work there. And then I landed in Philadelphia for a little under two years doing statewide energy policy. So that's where I got rather familiar with the different things that Pennsylvania has been doing around clean energy. Um, And then following my time in Philadelphia, I was in Washington, D.C., working for a transatlantic think tank, overseeing an electric power sector project. So working with business leaders and government entities both from Europe and the U.S., on how, with existing infrastructure, we can accommodate clean energy technologies and be prepared for all that's coming related to electric vehicles and renewables, et cetera, and making sure the grid can handle that kind of load. 
And then for two years, I was with the Institute for Market Transformation, working with cities across the United States to kind of value energy efficiency. So whether it's in the private sector or public sector, how do we make information available and why is energy efficiency important, et cetera. So I was working very closely with utilities and public utility commissions at the time to make sure that governments and building owners could access the building performance information of their buildings. And that was really great in that IMT and the Natural Resources Defense Council were leading a joint project called the City Energy Project, of which both Philadelphia and Pittsburgh are participants. Um, so it's great that both Pittsburgh and Philly have passed what's referred to as a benchmarking policy, meaning that buildings over a certain square footage have to submit a building performance score. So that was really great. And then most recently, I was out in California doing statewide energy policy, working with the California Energy Commission and the California Public Utilities Commission on all of the awesome things that Governor Brown and others have set out to do related to climate and energy. So now that you're in Pennsylvania again, what are you looking ahead to? What are the sort of the challenges and the opportunities that we have to deal with in the Commonwealth? How does your past experience fit in with the approach you're, you're going to take? Yes, I think it's a, it's a really exciting opportunity in that Pennsylvania obviously is um, a huge player in the energy space, both from a production standpoint and then also, you know, um, some of the things that we're seeing in Pittsburgh, like Uber and, and Tesla and others, that kind of technology component. But, you know, having just come from California, where there's sort of a history of kind of progressive ambitions around climate policy and energy policy, obviously, Pennsylvania is not California. But I actually think that that's, in some ways, kind of this tremendous opportunity and challenge related to energy and climate work here in the state. So I'm really excited about the report that Peck put out last year related to decarbonization and the number of strategies that have sort of been proposed related to how we can meet certain climate goals moving forward. So, you know, I'm really very, very excited to be leading that work moving forward. And right now, for example, you know, there's legislation in the House related to EV infrastructure and microgrids. And I think that both Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, but also a number of the utilities in the space as well, are doing a lot of thinking around what this will look like in terms of meeting certain targets. So I definitely have my work cut out for me, and I look forward to you know doing that over the course of the next year or two or three for that matter. You talk about Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, and certainly we hear a lot about the city-level uh, work that's happening on climate. What about the whole, the whole rest of the, that middle part of the state? Where does that fit in? Well, I think that there's a lot of opportunity around I'm going to say workforce development. And, you know, I hesitate from saying the term green jobs because I think that gets thrown around a lot. But Pennsylvania has this really rich history in terms of, um, you know, workforce opportunity related to energy, obviously Marcellus Shale and so forth. But I think that that will continue to evolve. And so I'm also looking forward to working with county governments and the different kind of uh, Council of Governments on where kind of some of those opportunities are. And obviously, in terms of like utility scale solar and wind farms, you know, that's just peppered throughout the state. And I think that there's a lot of opportunity there. But that's something I'm going to really look forward to over the next year is refamiliarizing myself with kind of all the Commonwealth has to offer, whether it's trails and watershed, but also the energy component. So I've been away for, you know, about six years now. And so now that I'm back, kind of diving back into what's going on here. 
and so you have this background where where you have experience working at the local level and at the statewide, but also you bring some international experience uh, to the table. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So when I was with the German Marshall Fund of the United States, we were running a, a project called the Energy Transition Forum that was working with leaders from Europe and the United States. So for example, PJM, which is the regional transmission organization where Pennsylvania is a part of. We had a number of senior leaders from PJM as well as utilities and government, etc. And what we did was basically get them together in a room over the course of a year and have a variety of workshops. But really these questions were around kind of, you know, these men and women work in the energy space and we'd ask them questions like, what's keeping you up at night um, as it relates to solar or, you know, all these different things. And it was really interesting to hear the way these companies and these government agencies were thinking about things. And, you know, it was really exciting. I led a study tour over in Europe um, with the group. We were in Brussels as well as Berlin, and we got to take, for example, a helicopter tour across the Baltic Sea to see some of the offshore wind development. And it's really exciting when you stand, for example, in these control rooms and you see kind of all of this energy information reading across the screens and they literally have like a red phone where they're having to pick that up and sometimes saying to these wind farms or what have you, you know, stand down or, you know, curtailment around some of the energy. So that was really fun and exciting. And I got to hear very smart people talk about, you know, what they see as kind of the future of energy. So for example, one of the gentlemen who did work in Norway started to use the term prosumer. So producer and consumer. Um, And that's really exciting because there's a lot of opportunities for kind of, you know, residents now, like a smart home or having solar, et cetera, to kind of be now a participant in the energy market, which isn't really something we've seen before. So that I think is very exciting and is already happening here in Pennsylvania, but I think will continue to kind of evolve and advance. How did you get interested in this kind of work in the first place? And what does it what does it do for you? What do you get excited about? That's such a good question. So I am from Pittsburgh. My family generationally is from the area. My um, grandfather was a chemist for the, the steel industry here. And I first sort of started getting interested in kind of energy in Pennsylvania specifically when I had an internship that was looking at kind of some communities that were being negatively affected by a coal-fired power plant in the state. And I started to sort of see the impacts and legacy of energy in the state. So that was really great. And then I did some urban farming work here in Pittsburgh with Grow Pittsburgh, which is seated right next to a um, functioning steel mill. So that kind of dichotomy, I think, is a very interesting one here in the state and then Pittsburgh specifically. So, you know, Basically, it's like when you know better, do better. And I think that that's kind of the exciting thing about energy right now because of the technological advancements paired with policy and kind of regulatory adjustments. We're really seeing a lot of opportunity. And so I think to be back in kind of my hometown and home state and be able to carry this work forward is really exciting for me. And I've learned a lot being away and now being back, you know, kind of applying that, but making it appropriate for the context that is the Commonwealth. And this doesn't connect directly with your work, but there's sort of an unofficial thing at PEC. I think just about everybody that's ever worked here is is some kind of an outdoorsy type of personality. So I just wanted to ask, what are your favorite outdoor activities, uh, places you like to go? What do you do when you're not inside a building doing work? Yes. So definitely, um, you know, biking and hiking for sure. But I also fancy myself like an urban 
like walking enthusiast. I love to walk all over the city, kind of the industrial parts over in the, you know, Lawrenceville and Strip District and just kind of poke around. I mean, Pittsburgh has such an interesting history in that regard. So being outside, but also in an urban sort of cityscape, I think is great. And in the warmer months when it gets so jungly, but it's also kind of this like, you know, the big warehouses and so forth. So I love to just walk and explore, etc. But I'm looking forward to doing more, more biking now that these trails and everything are being connected and, um, and, and kind of getting to know the area again. All right. Well, Alyssa, welcome to Peck and thanks for your time today. Thanks. Alyssa Berger is PAC's brand new senior policy advisor for energy and climate. You can learn more about our deep decarbonization initiative at PEC-climate.org, P-E-C-climate.org. Also, the energy and climate section of the PEC website at PECPA.org, where there is a brand new bio of our newest staffer, Alyssa Berger. Twenty eighteen marks the twenty fifth anniversary of the Keystone Fund, which provides funding for a whole range of projects and investments benefiting communities all over Pennsylvania, from parks and trails to libraries and even historic sites. Well, we're celebrating the milestone this year by getting to know some of the special places the fund has played a role in building or improving over the years through the eyes of the people who know those places best. So far, we have heard Keystone Fund success stories from Lehigh and Lancaster counties. Today, it's Lycoming County, where Muncie Heritage Park and Nature Trail offers residents a chance to enjoy the outdoors. But it's a little different from a lot of other neighborhood parks and trail systems. It serves as an open-air laboratory for students and others interested in digging into local history in a very literal sense. Teacher and researcher Robin Van Auken has led several of those digs. She wrote about the experience for the KeystoneFund.org Success Stories Project. I called Robin up on Skype to hear more about it. My name is Robin Van Auken. I am a writer, educator, and historical archaeologist. I work at Lycoming College, and I live in the Williamsport area of Pennsylvania. In 2005, Lycoming College was approached by the Muncie Historical Society. Now, this is a very tiny, small, humble historical society, but it's very dynamic. The people who um, volunteer there, especially the president, who is Bill Poulton, and his wife, Linda Poulton, they're amazing, hardworking, ambitious visionaries, actually. But <laughs> enough about raving about them. They contacted us in 2005 because they had access to an 11-acre area next to the river that happened to have a canal corridor in it. And Bill Poulton and his wife, Linda, Linda's father had owned the property and when he passed away he um, left it to his eldest daughter Betty Fisher. Well Bill had been in the habit of taking care of this property for his father-in-law and he had been basically mowing it more or less on a monthly basis for 20 or 30 years and he'd pretty much gotten to know the contour of the area and he knew that on this site there was a historic drinking well. So he figured that this drinking well must have been connected or associated with some type of toll house for the canal because there was a double lock system where the canal entered the river. And he 
contacted Like I'm in College to ask if their archaeology department could maybe come on out, do a little poking around and, you know, see what we could find. At the time, Dr. John Piper was the dean of Lycoming College, and the Department of Archaeology was headed by Dr. Robin Knaut. So the three of us headed on over to Muncie to meet with Bill Poulton, and he poked around with a bar when we got there, and we heard a thunk, which meant, you know, wasn't hitting dirt anymore. He hit a piece of concrete. So we bent down and we kind of brushed things away, a little bit of dirt and debris away with our hands, and we found this concrete. And we said, yep, there's something here. And it just seemed like such an interesting project that I said, yeah, let's do it. I'm very interested in historical archaeology. And a canal site piqued my interest. So that May, what we did is I brought my uh, Lycoming College archaeology field crew out to the site and we uncovered the drinking well there was a piece of concrete um, about four feet in diameter it was not exactly a circle more like a you know like a soft rectangle but on the top of this piece of concrete was carved a date you know you could see where somebody had used a stick when the concrete was originally poured and it had um, October 22nd, 1928. And um, this was very, you know, interesting to us. Here we have our very first artifact, and it weighed several hundred pounds. We had to remove it um, in order to proceed with the dig. And so after my archaeology field crew wrapped up their school, which was several weeks long in the field, we kept the dig open. And at that point, we turned it into a public archaeology dig inviting hundreds of people to the site so that they could all help us do a little bit of excavation. And these people ranged from like five years old to 85 years old. And this continued for about four or five years, having a public archaeology dig, as we continue to excavate the heritage of this park. And meanwhile, Muncie is writing grants, soliciting labor from different community groups and organizations getting you know a lot of different people involved and turned it into the Muncie Heritage Park and Nature Trail. So a public archaeological dig is not that's not something I've ever heard of. Usually it calls to mind strings and and tiny brushes and very careful cautious painstaking over over months and years, but this was this is something a little bit different. It was, and that's why every year when we opened up a new area the Lycoming College Archaeology Field School would open it because at that point we had several weeks of older um, people who were working in a scientific method. We were able to, you know, accumulate a lot of information that was scientific and careful in nature. But you would be amazed at how precise a five-year-old can be with a little brush, you know, because we're talking about people that, first of all, they don't know what archaeology is. They think they're digging dinosaurs. <laughs> so they're being very careful. But what we did is, you know, we set the pattern. We would go out, dig, excavate, get information, and then open it up to the public. And we would all be there with the public. You know, it's not like we just said, okay, come on in. And it was like a herd, you know, stampede of people. No, we would have small groups of people that would meet us out there and they would actually train with us and return. People who did not return were the people who were on vacation and and weren't around to return. I mean, people loved this dig. 
they came every year and we had visitors from Canada, England. We had one whole family that, you know, the father had seen a little article about the dig in a in-flight magazine. So he packed up his family, his sons and his wife, and they flew in from California and spent a week excavating with us. So, you know, they weren't able to return year after year, but while they were there, they got to do archaeology. So the excavation itself, I gather, is over now, but what what does the space look like currently? How is it being used now? It has been transformed into basically um, almost like a living history. Where the well was. Um, We excavated it almost as if we were coming in from an Indian mound. We excavated it from the side and we we removed stones from one area, basically to create like a little gateway. And um, the rest of the well was preserved and a little house was built around it. There was a fence that was put over top and at the opening so that people could actually walk up to the drinking well, excavated, drinking well and look inside and look at the, you know, the excavated walls and the floor. So that was preserved with a sign, an interpretive panel. And then other areas that we had excavated, they erected small little outbuildings, like maybe the facade of a toll house of the um, lock keeper. They have a canal boat (laughs) you know, a partial canal boat that they inherited from the canal museum that they put into another pavilion. They recreated the mule barn pavilion in a different area. But what they've done is they've created these standalone um, vignettes, basically, so that people can walk up and get an idea of what it may have looked like when it was a working canal. And they have interpretive panels at every imaginable spot. They probably have about 20 interpretive panels out there at the site, um, strategically placed, so that as people are walking the trail, it will either telling something about the heritage of the site or um, something about the nature of the site, like, you know, what kind of birds you'll see, what kind of flowers are out here, what is this pond? Yeah, I'd hope you could tell me more about the nature part of it. This is, I mean, this is a public green space. What are the sort of park experiences that people have there? Is it is it hiking? Is it uh, biking? Well, now we're talking about a canal corridor, and it's an eleven acre long park. Uh, So it's not massive, and the park itself, there's a, a nice long loop that you can walk on, and um, all of the trails are ADA. So when you pull in, you've got a parking lot that you're able to park in. And in, and this is a green parking space so that, you know, underneath the what little gravel and dirt there is, is basically, you know, an embedded mesh so that any kind of runoff is going to, you know, not disturb the site itself. There's a bioswell that's been built next to the parking lot so that any water that does run off, it will collect in this swale area. And in the spring and summer, it turns into like a meadow full of butterfly bushes. So it attracts a lot of wildlife there. Um, You've got two different ponds. You've got one pond that is always filled and it's got little sunfish, pinfish, panfish. I'm not really sure what they're, you know, what types of um, fish you have because I'm from Florida. So I'm telling you pinfish because <laughs> that's what we call them, tiny little fish. Um, so you have this one pond uh, and it's full of ducks, geese, turtles, beautiful, ringed with cattails and it's got some um, beautiful water lilies. So you have a nice little loop 
trail that goes around that. And then you have a long trail that just follows the original towpath of the canal. And this, of course, is 11 acres long trail. And people can walk from the park um, almost into the little borough of Muncie using that trail. Or they can opt to just, you know, walk the short loop around the pond. And there's a lovely little walkway that goes down to the river. And at that point, you can take your kayaks with you if you want. So you have access to the river. You can go fishing. Um, it's a beautiful connection to the river that very few thing, very few parks around here let you actually connect to the river. I mean, some places have like boat launches. This is a soft launch. So if you have a kayak, you can pull into the little park, leave your car, carry your kayak down to the river and jump in. So all of these uh, improvements, investments, uh, enhancements you've been talking about, were all of these funded through the Keystone Fund or through local money leveraged by way of the Keystone Fund? Can you talk about that piece? Well, that would actually be a better spoken to by Bill Poulton. He, he spent years and years and years collecting and soliciting funds. Um, a lot of it came from their own pockets, <laughs> to tell you the truth. The Poultons believed in this project so deeply that they were willing to put out um, events to raise money. So Muncie Historical Society would hold an art gallery, an art show, and any kind of income that they had, part of it would go to the park. They would do the same thing with um, their quilt show. So all little events that they had were basically using to um, make matching grants, and they would uh, apply to the Keystone, to the DC, I, I think DCNR, Susquehanna Greenway helped out, you know, because there was a lot of money that needed to be raised. The scale of the ambition that you're describing, is this something that could have gotten to that level if it was simply a grassroots local effort? Or, or I mean, what's the value of having a independent source of funding from the state to kind of catalyze and you know, leverage. There is no way that this would have happened without support from the government, from the state. It would never have gotten off the ground because Bill had been chipping away at this park for years mentally. He had a vision of what he knew could be out there and to realize it, just, the you know, a tiny little I don't know how big this borough is, but, you know, maybe 4,000 people in the entire town. Um, you know, and we're talking about a park that, even though it serves 4,000 people, I still use it. And I live 18 miles away. You know, I'm willing to travel to it. So even though it's a, a county-wide audience that could be, you know, potentially using this park, there's no way that this one small little group could have done it without support, without help. And now they have another project <laughs> that they're looking at. Um, and this is their mission, is to, to find these historically significant areas and to think, what could we do with this? What could we do to not only protect it and preserve it, but to interpret it and then to transform it so that the community can walk into it? Um, there was a, a Revolutionary War hero who had settled in this area, and his name was Captain um, John Brady. And um, his homestead was a small fort, a, a tiny little fort and trading post, basically in the frontier. 
And during the French and Indian War, he was also quite the, um, the hero. So he was out here in the frontier and was assassinated. He was assassinated and um, his family had to leave. The Indians came and they burned his fort to the ground and all was lost. Abandoned the site, went, went away back off of the frontier. And so this site had sat for many, many years, just abandoned and neglected. During the Depression, when the WPA was out and about doing archaeology, they came to the site and tried to locate it, tried to, you know, say, hey, Key, here is the site. Here is the site of this fort. They weren't really sure. They were more interested in the time at finding prehistoric Indians. Their notes are very brief. And so what happened is um, Muncie was offered this property. Muncie Historical Society was offered this property um, at a very low price with the idea, uh, do you want to try to do this? Do you want to try to turn this one into a part two? So now the challenge is to take a look at this amazing historic site, go out and do another archaeology dig and try to find the site of the original fort, but also working with Brian Allman again, the landscape architect, to develop a master plan to create another nature park so that people will be able to come out in Muncie and, you know, walk trails, you know, have um, a green space, but also, you know, learn a little bit about the French and Indian War and the, you know, Muncie on the frontier. So again, they're, you know, out there, this little, like you said, tiny organization, you know, can we do this with grassroots money? No, (laughs) none of this can be accomplished with just local money. Pockets aren't that deep. You mentioned you live nearby or not far away. Can you talk about what it has meant to the community and people living in the area to have this resource? What do you think people get out of visiting it? Well, you know, because I have this connection to the park and I can appreciate it so much, I still teach at Lycoming College. And I also, I kind of like teach in the communications department as well as in the um, archaeology religion department. I use it personally with Muncie to hold events. Um, One of the classes, for example, that I teach right now is called event planning. And when I taught it um, a year and a half ago, I invited Bill Poulton to my class and I said, look, Bill, I've got 25 students and they all need to plan events. What do you have going on in the park this spring and summer? What do you do on a regular basis that we could maybe help you with some of the, you know, planning, the organization, and also the implementing? So, with Bill Poulton coming in and talking to my students, we planned a variety of events. There was Ark in the Park, which was a, a simulated archaeology dig. And this was a great, um, this, <laughs> that was such a fun project because there had been a massive dumpster in the park temporarily while they were um, working on another project. And when they took the dumpster away, they left this giant bare spot in the grass that everybody looked at and they went, oh, what an eyesore. And I looked at it and I said, are you kidding? Let's put stakes in the ground and tie some string around it. And I've got a little archaeology dig for kids. Now, I knew there wasn't anything here in that particular area. We would not be disturbing anything because it was right off of the parking lot and I had already done um, an archaeological survey of that area. So we seeded it with all kinds of little things like Egyptian Egyptian charms and things, you know, beads and things from the college. And so my my college kids actually, you know, organized this event for archaeology in the park for children. And I'm about 60 people came out for that event. Another one of my students, they planned a fishing derby. And we had maybe 200 people come out on one day 
with her children and were fishing. And we had um, partnered with like uh, Trout Unlimited to do that one. Another um, activity was birds and bugs. Another one was a night sky viewing where they pulled out the telescopes. So Muncie continues to use this park and plan events and people come from all over. When they come from all over, are they spending money locally? Oh, they are. <laughs> some of them are staying in the B&Bs. Some of them are using the restaurants. Like I mentioned, um, we had one family that came as far away as Ca- um, California to have a vacation. They weren't the only people who did that. People saw this um, public archaeology dig in Condé Nast publications because it's so unusual to have a public archaeology dig where a child can participate it captured the attention of Cookie Magazine. And so they sent a reporter out and did a little article about it, and it went national. So we had we had quite a bit of attention. We even had a, a young woman who came and spent some time with us from Great Britain because she was interested in learning how to conduct public archaeology digs. So she worked with us. So it continues. It, it's, going, it's going to continue also stimulating interest. Kayaks. Um, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar being you know connected as we are with the West Branch and the original Susquehanna River that you know there are a lot of different kayak trips that take place especially you know during the spring and summer Muncie is one of their favorite stops so different organizations like the Susquehanna Greenway and even private organizations will create kayak trips down the river and pull out in at the Muncie Park and they'll have um you know cookouts stay the weekend chill in the park. What was the last time you visited the park and uh, what was your experience like there? Well, I was just out there. Um, Actually, it was November. The reason why I had been out there was because we were also looking at the uh, Fort Brady site, working at the Fort Brady site, putting in a few um, archaeology test pits out there to get a feel, meeting different people. I, I felt immense satisfaction and happiness knowing that, you know, I helped with a small part, the archaeology, you know, the initial interpretation of the site and seeing that this park was finished. I mean, I, as an archaeologist, whenever I go anywhere and I have to put in, um, say, a test pit or a survey site or an excavation unit, I'm usually one of the first persons on the scene because, you know, it's usually after archaeology is conducted that development can continue. And not always is development, you know, apparent or it's not always positive. You know, for example, it could have been a road that somebody wanted to put through. But coming back to the park and seeing that, not only did they have a vision, but they stuck with it year after year. And it's been, my goodness, more than 12 years now since the first time I went to that park. And I see the pristine condition it's in, that people are still using it, that I can go out there and be a part of an event if I want to, a variety of events, or I can go out there when there's no event and just have solitude. When I speak to people, they tell me, oh, yes, I love that park. I walk it all the time, every day. That's, you know, and they take ownership. They go, that's my park. Like, they own it. So, you know, I I, I feel, like I said, very happy, very happy to have been a part of a vision that was, you know, not only committed to at the beginning, but realized all the way through to the end. Robin, thank you for your time and congratulations on, on everything you've accomplished with the park. You're welcome. 
Hey, all I had to do was sit back these last few years. The first few years were, were the difficult ones where we were, you know, because I, I was so invested. I, I just loved the archaeology so much that I, I continued to work with Muncie as a, a volunteer, making websites, writing grants. Uh, and I'm still connected with the, the Fort Brady Park that, you know, we've got on the horizon. Well, I wish you all best of luck with the next project. It sounds Thank really exciting. Thank you. Thank you so much. Robin Van Auken is based in Lycoming County, where she writes and teaches at Lycoming College. And she also hosts her own podcast, Let's Talk Books. You can find it and more of her work at her website, robinvanauken.com. That's Robin Van, A-U-K-E-N.com. Check out Robin's Keystone Fund success story at keystonefund.org. We'll link to both of those places in the show notes for this episode, which, of course, you can find at peckpa.org. That is, of course, the home online of the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, where we post information about work being done in our trails and recreation program, also energy and climate, watershed work, and much more. Again, peckpa.org. Look for us on Twitter at P-E-C-P-A and on Facebook, too. You can subscribe to this program in Apple Podcasts or on SoundCloud or really anywhere that you can plug it in RSS feed and subscribe to a podcast. It's all available via peckpa.org. Thanks for listening. Thanks even more for recommending the show. One of the most impactful ways that you can do that and help spread the word is by leaving a rating or maybe even a review on the Apple Podcast site or, again, wherever you access Pennsylvania Legacies. Wherever you do, it makes a big difference, and we appreciate it. And be sure to check back in in a couple of weeks for another episode. We post them every other Friday at peckpa.org and all the aforementioned other platforms. Until then, for the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, I'm Josh Rollerson. Thanks for listening.